This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. McCard carrying Basing at this point. Ben Alomar, director of sports analytics at ESPN. Uh, Just next to Big Poppy, be like, he's just one of us, man. <laughs> That's kind of a big deal and shows you a lot about the randomness of sports. Rick Peterson, longtime pitching coach for the major leagues. This is Warden Moneyball's post-game podcast. This is Cade Massey, host of Wharton Moneyball, and you're listening to our podcast. We air live on Business Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 132, every Wednesday, 8 to 10 Eastern. Enjoy this week's show. We are absent this morning, Kate Massey, our colleague from the OID department, and Eric Bradlow of many departments, but most famously the marketing department. So those guys, uh, Kate actually had an intended absence, and er- Eric unfortunately had some... Um, last minute things to attend to and is not joining us in the studio. We've got a whole bunch of fun topics to discuss. If it is not a Wednesday morning or you don't feel like calling, you can email us at businessradio at SiriusXN.com or tweet at us at bizradio132. And we also have oh, at Wharton Moneyball is our Twitter, our Twitter, <laughs> Twitter handle. Am I getting this right, Shane? Yeah, yeah. yeah no, say, say, well say, done. Say well hello. Done, Excellent. Way. Social media. <laughs> we're, we're working on it. Uh, you know, we guys in our, in our upper decades are just starting to <laughs> learn how to deal with these What are you things. talking about? I'm an Instagram influencer. <laughs> are you really? No, Man, influencer. No, not at all. There's a word I do know. So there's a whole lot going on in sports um, this week. We got NHL playoffs. We yes. had the we had just just run through. We got obviously we got Major League Baseball in full swing. We've got the college, not uh, the 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 draft, the yeah, NFL some draft, shocks and we've there. got of course the NBA playoffs. Yeah. So there's a lot to talk about this, uh, and of course. It's <laughs> coming up the first Saturday of May is the Kentucky Derby. Yeah. So we have two guests this morning. We have uh, Jeff Cedar, who's going to come and talk about um, horse racing and the, the modern state of art of uh, horse uh, prediction and forecasting. Jeff Cedar. And uh, he's coming on at about 8.30 or so, 8.35 in the second half. And then a longtime friend and guest of our show and well-known uh, writer, journalist, podcast host himself, Neil Payne. He could talk about pretty much anything. He, he, he will. And he will come and talk about anything at the at the top of the hour. So that's so we're going we're gonna to talk about just about everything. But I actually want to start with two entirely different things that nobody is thinking about. The first thing no one is thinking about is, is they're not thinking about because nobody knows. So I'll just throw this out as a sort of an interesting kind of concept. One of the things we do in Wharton Moneyball is we like to talk about the rarity of events and sort of rank sort of the most mm-hmm. remarkable phenomenons. So if you think back in the last 10 years, what are the sort of the most impressive um, athletic accomplishments that you can think of. I'll throw one out. Leicester City winning yes. the, uh, the the Champions League. They were so, so far distant in the preseason, yet they won. What would you throw out as, a, as another one that happened in the last 10 years? And I'm going to give you the one that I'm thinking about. Do you have anything that just remarkable performance that just oh, extraordinarily rare? Blanking on well, this. Well, there's a good reason to blank on it because uh, it was the Premier League. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Matt throws out, I screwed up the Champions League. I don't know much about soccer. So <laughs> don't, don't, uh, don't, you know, you know, uh, force me on that issue. But, you know, they're rare. So they're, they're not supposed to happen that often. So yeah. that's a, that's a good, that's a good that you have actually turn around and go, I'm not really sure. But something happened that's really remarkable here at the University of Pennsylvania. So we actually have a uh, member of our sports analytics crew who's uh, on the sport, on the softball team, and she threw a perfect game. And that really? is actually a remarkable. Her name is Jennifer Brand, and for the for the University of Pennsylvania Quakers, she threw a perfect game in softball. It's the third time it's happened since the 1960s in the Ivy League. That, really, that so, so are our perfect games more 
difficult in softball, like at lower frequency even in softball than in baseball? Um, I, it sounds like they're about the same frequency, yeah. which is means extremely rare. Baseball, they are much more rare, obviously, than no hitters. They're one of the rarest things in, 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 in uh, baseball, and I guess now in softball. And she did one yeah. here for, for uh, here in the Ivy League. Now you're going to sit there and go, oh, the Ivy League, right? I don't know. Maybe that's not serious stuff. But when it comes I to mean, softball. A perfect game is pretty serious no matter when you, where, no matter where, when when you do it. So I think that she deserves a shout out for doing yeah. something that's about in the one in 5,000 range. So that's, uh, that, that puts us in, the, I think, the extremely remote yeah. um, possi- uh, probability range. So that second kind of like complete play action fake, we'll talk about something that's not on the radar. I know that you and I did something um, in separate places, but we did it on Sunday night. Oh, yeah. And, and by the way, I, I, we are about, I think, to discuss Game of Thrones. Mm-hmm. So if you still <laughs> after, are. you know, we've given you all uh, a good half a week now to have watched to, to watch it. To so, caught so up. I guess so this is you, a spoiler, right? This, this is. is yeah, we're going to have to discuss spoilers. So co- come back in like 10 minutes if, if you don't want to hear something. So actually, it's interesting because one of the things to think about is how does an analyst or statistician approach watching the Game of Thrones? So let's back it up. Yeah. Uh, Kate started something. on. Yeah, the, we have uh, we have our death pool in Game of Thrones. Um and uh, where we basically took like twenty of the kind of major characters and predicted whether or not they uh um would uh would die would basically. die no, but it's the end of the season I think well, we're doing... by the end of the season but not I, particularly actually, I last we would, uh, I... last weekend I, I I thought we would get more deaths last weekend well yes and that's I think um, that's I thought the... it would be more of a bloodbath I but... did too and this is the this is from the analytic perspective because if, you, if there's one thing you take from statistics yeah. is the best predictor of the future is the past yeah and then of course the trick is to not under, to understand the signal the repeatable aspects of the past and brought that bring that into the forward and not get distracted by the mm-hmm. by the rare events the the oddities that aren't going to predict. And so we did that with with Game of Thrones. So how did you think about Game of Thrones using that sort of strategy? Well, I mean, uh, so I I mean I, I I basically use kind of very conventional sort of fantasy. Yeah, I, I guess I use tried to build my subject domain knowledge in fantasy kind of <laughs> right. You went you know w- epic fantasy tales go, right? Right. tales to sort of predict. Like for example, for all you that I mean. That are watching the show and still listening to us, you know, Grey Worm made this speech at the end of the previous episode where he's like, you know, oh, Missandra, we're going to go retire on a beach when all this is over. I mean, that is like, I, I mean, you. What, what do you infer from that? Well, death. Any anytime somebody makes a speech like that, they die. Okay, in, that's in, right. In, that's in right. action movies. That's like the classic, like I've only got a week till retirement kind of cop like <laughs> line, right? right. So Catholic. I thought he was toast. I mean, he still could be toast <laughs> no, in a grand scene, just- but. Let's just walk back to the beginning yeah. of Game of Thrones. I mean, I watched the whole first season. I never read the books. And uh, I didn't go back and yeah. watch it. I, I saw it live. And one of the things that was so incredible about Thrones, which has sort of lasted through the first few seasons, was the, the, the lack of fear to knock out a favorite character. Yeah. The unpredictability, I think, even more generally. And they've still got it in terms of unpredictability. But on the other hand, we all for, if we had to do a one episode, and this is total spoiler right now, I would have predicted far more major character deaths in the first, in the first, in this past, yeah. you know, war. No, and I think they have kind of, um, a couple trends that I think I would c- continue to build into my predictive model as we go forward here is they've gotten softer. Like, I think yeah. they are less prone to kill off major beloved characters than they used to be. Um, and I, we were seeing indications of that even in season seven, um, where they had certainly ample opportunity to kill off more characters and did not. And I think you know, also they're kind of shying away. I mean, I don't. 
I mean, I, I I salute them for staying unpredictable. I did not anticipate what would happen in this ep- episode Be, at well, all. It's interesting because they went unpredictable um, in exactly the opposite way. Yeah. They went back to not killing. They went back. They never did this before. They never they never were so kind and gentle and soft yeah. to their major characters. I thought, you know, in the beginning of the season, if you had the name Stark, you were toast, in yeah. my view. <laughs> that, that whole family was history. Yeah. But now that seems to be like a magic charm for staying alive. Yeah, no, and I and I think um, I, I mean I'm a little bit disappointed with how they're kind of playing out the story, only because I think they're kind of and the other sort of trend that I think I see with the writers of the show is I think they really know that they do the political intrigue stuff really well, well, so we're and get maybe back to the that. mystical kind of magical stuff less well, or at least that's harder to explain to maybe a broader audience or something like that, and so they're kind of getting rid of the mystical stuff. The, like, big bad zombie, you know, that's gone now, and now it's just going to be political intrigue and military kind of positioning for the rest of the season, presumably. I mean, they could really surprise us. I mean, we, you know... We could be doing a premature kind of, yeah, you know, right softness. Uh, call, calling it on like, you know, the whole the, zombie the one, the Night King. King. Maybe that, maybe the Night King comes back in some way. That would be actually really awesome. But uh, the fact that he kind of they eliminated basically, you know, I in the books you get the sense that the, all these Game of Thrones political machinations are like a, a distraction from the real bad thing, which is this long night and this zombie right. horde. The way they played out the show, it's all oh, actually the zombie horde with a distraction. And now we're getting back to From, politics. Now let's get back to our political stuff. So that was a, our, a little quick yeah. wrap up on the Game of Thrones, a little digression. It was very interesting. I think it's interesting to think about um, the way we almost think about analytics in any perspective, and you can kind of do yeah, the same Yeah, I mean, it, it's sort of like, I mean, it would be hard to kind of quantify, or, or it'd be hard to make this quantitative, but... What we ju- what the thought process we just described is kind of how you model things, right? That's you it. think about what trends there are in the past data to the extent that there are any, and you try and make a model. And, and in this particular case with Game of Thrones, that model is probably going to suck because they're going to do something well, yeah, completely they're, unexpected they're what we anyway. Call, I mean, they're, they're a difficult adversary. Yeah. One of the things we do in, in information theory is we try, to, we try to build models that forecast the future. And instead of thinking about it in terms of a probability distribution, you think it in terms of an enemy. Yeah. And, and you think of your arch enemy as the most difficult adversary, and, and, and you want to trying to perform somewhat optimally against the most troublesome and, yeah. and competitive adversary. And that's really what I think the writers of the, of the, the No, the they are. are. They're, they're, probably, <laughs> they're probably, in their mind, they're like, well, what can we do that would be the most surprising, basically? And, and by not killing people, almost it seems yeah. to have been yeah. the most surprising thing. Well, speaking of surprises, let's let's go talk about the uh, the NFL draft. And I oh, think you know goodness. where I'm yeah. heading. I think, you know, one of the things our, our longtime listeners all know, you don't have to be a longtime listener of our show to know that the chain is really being in, in Boston sports so that means of course the uh the, the New England Patriots, whenever they're doing, I mean, he's got yeah. a grin on his face. And, well, I uh, mean, they don't usually have the most exciting draft. No, they, they usually dra- they usually <laughs> they don't usually, have very high picks. They're usually at the end. <laughs> but their arch enemy of if, if you ever get you want to see Shane get upset, you uh, just have to mention the Giants. Yeah, I, because cool. the Giants have been have been killers. Uh, yeah. uh, of uh, championship. Um, I mean, or, they're New York based for one thing, right. and they obviously have had some very specific success. Against so the I Patriots wanted your, that we so don't this need is to get so, into. exactly. So one of the things that we would happen in the NFL draft was the. Giants had a high yeah, pick. Yeah, no, they had, and I what think, did the they surprise do? of the draft. Well, they took this guy, Daniel Jones, out of Duke as a quarterback, which, I mean, they're getting, you know, killed for it on social media. I, and it, their their fans because, are crying. Yeah, no, and, and I mean... Literally crying. <laughs> you know, I, I mean, I, it's, it's hard to kind of... I, I mean, that... 
Oh, I guess I've got two things to say. The, that specific pick is really questionable given that, I, I mean, quarterbacks are unpredictable anyway. It's, it's very hard to predict which quarterbacks are going to have NFL success coming out of college. But there are some predictors, and I mean, how you do in college is at least somewhat positively correlated with how you're going to do in the NFL. And to leave Dwayne Haskins on the board, who has had a much richer college resume against much better competition compared to this guy, Daniel Jones, um, is is questionable at best. And I, I, I think Gettleman did not, the, the general manager, did not really soothe anybody by then describing his thought process afterwards. It didn't make, seem to they make interviewed, sense. He's like, why rule? I watched the, the Senior Bowl, which is kind of like the all-star game for college football. And I just fell in love with Daniel Jones after watching him for three drives. Oh, my God. So he's, he's really hitting the major buttons in statistical well, sort of and, and nonsense. I mean, it, it hits, three it, drives. It especially hits a chord with us. It's like, well, that I, I mean, could you imagine a less quantitative, less right. analytical, more just kind of anecdotal, gut feeling, right. gut feeling kind of evaluation? And so, yeah, yeah. I mean, if, if maybe it's deeper than that, and maybe we're not getting our credit, and Daniel Jones could end up being successful. But, yeah, it's a very questionable decision. So just, you know, we're going to have Neil Payne on, and he's actually written and talked about this yeah. extensively. I'll so be interested to so, hear his thoughts. So one of the things, when you just listen, to you, Shade, and, and, and extracting as much information as I can about NFL um, management over the years, particularly, you know, because Cade, that, that's his expertise. And the NFL really lags behind basketball and baseball in terms of the importance of analytics in the front office and decision making, as I think we know that. And what I think that means is that there's an enormous diversity among the teams from top to bottom. So I'm not even sure who the best teams are. They probably has to be the Patriots when it comes to analytics. And then, of course, a couple of teams have hired some very uh, high-profile analytics people. The Browns did. Yeah, the uh, Eagles are very analytically and the, forward the Eagles are doing as, it. as well. No, definitely. So, I, but I do think there is this separation still. Yeah, it somehow has maintained, like, some, somehow the culture in football is a little bit slower evolving or slower moving. It's more resistant to change. And that creates this sort of like, yeah. I, I And it, it's funny to kind of hear we had Michael Lombardi on the show last week. And it, during his interview, he was, he was I, I, recalling a story, I hope I get this right, where he was talking to Bill Walsh, like back back when he, he started. And it was, it was during some draft, and and Bill Walsh was talking about how they really were only competing against eight other teams, not 30 other teams. Amazing. You know. Because they were all that. Because, you know, not that many teams are kind of, you know, are, are up there on, in terms of, like, the advance, you know, what, whatever the kind of, you know, sort of advantage of the day, it is adopted very slowly. So I wonder and what, my impression is that we're still talking about, about eight like, teams, eight, eight, ten, eight ten teams, teams or something like that that are kind of with it, and then the other ones are, who knows what they're doing. So I remember we actually had a, a discussion last week about the number of trade-ups. So one of the things that Cade has written about that is, uh, is how there's a lot of value in the draft mm -hmm. to trading down because people yes. are willing to overpay for higher draft positions. Yeah. So I'm curious. And you can usually get multiple picks if you trade down for one pick, and, right. and you know, if, if you kind of think of this is sort of like I mean this is sort of more of the trust the process kind of kind of mentality that you know given that it's a chancy sort of thing you know given that not not each prospect's going to turn out the more shots that you have to grab somebody that does turn out the better that's great that's that's actually one of our standard lessons yeah. here more shots at a very random um, barrel of apples is a lot better than just one that you think is uh, might have a, the best chance and that i think is really some um, in many ways summarizes the the NFL draft yeah. but i think the interesting thing about jones is and, and from an analytic perspective and i can't wait to to push this later in, in the hour is there tends to be i mean there's a couple of 
pretty serious analytical attempts to try to forecast future performance of of uh, quarterbacks. And the basic idea is, what do you make of your college experience that's most valuable? So the two positions, as I understand it, is there's one one is the is the thought that you really look at the the performance of the quarterbacks under pressure, how they do in these very tight situations when their rush is on and they, they can't sit in the pocket. And they, of course, the other approach is exactly the opposite. Ignore everything that happens on the fly and look at how they do when they have got the protection because you're really looking to see how they, they pass mm-hmm. in yep. with protections. And that, that arguably is what is supposed to forecast. Now, John's, John Hermsmeyer, who's been on our show, he essentially talks about it as he really thinks it's, it's has to do with just the protection. Um, so that's uh, so that's. Um, but on the other hand, I, I just heard an ESPN analyst say exactly the opposite. So no one really seems to know. What is your take on that? Do you have any thoughts? Well, I mean, I, 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 we we did have Josh Hermsmeyer on the show uh, last week. Um, Thank you for and, correcting and, and, me. And, by the and, way, I mean, one, one of the things that I thought was interesting <laughs> about his analysis is, I mean, he was looking at a lot of different kind of predictors of NFL success, like what college statistics actually do sort of predict NFL some amount of NFL success, and one of them is just kind of pat, you know, is kind of this. Is passing accuracy, and I don't right, know. But he, he does it even better than it. it's adjusted for opponent and length and yardage. So he that's calls right, it adjusted that's right. completion. Yeah, that's right. So yeah, he looks at passing accuracy as a function of, of of the length of the you know yardage of the throws and stuff like that. And I think that's very insightful. And I remember he had I remember an analysis a couple of years ago where Baker Mayfield really stood out from his right. his contemporaries on these particular things, um, and and I think that's interesting because that that at least that kind of passing accuracy. I'm not quite sure whether he controls for pressure or not in that, but you'd think that that would be somewhat of a pressure-independent concept, at least, right? It's just sort of, can right. you hit your targets down the field? Though pressure obviously does indirectly factor into, like, I mean, if you're not making a lot of long throws, it's perhaps because you're getting a lot of pressure, right? So, um, but I do know that on pack- passing accuracy, um, again, Daniel Jones just... You know, does not, just not look, look as look impressive I mean, as Dwayne Haskins specifically. I think we're all at a loss, and yeah. we'll have a chance to talk about it more. So one oddity, I think interesting, last year's draft, number 10 pick, Josh Rosen, who went to the Arizona yeah. Cardinals. Yep. He's been traded for a second-round selection, number 62 overall for this year, and a fifth-rounder in 2020. So what happened is, of course, is they took Kyler Murray, and now they can yeah. release Josh, uh, um, Josh, Josh Rosen. Rosen. So what do you think? I mean, this seems odd that he'd be he'd fall that badly. Is that because his first... First year was just. I, I so think mediocre. so. I, I think it's uh, it's it's sort of. I mean, I think that there's a good chance that he is still a, a good quarterback because his, I, he did certainly have a very mediocre first year in the league, but he had a terrible offensive line. There's a lot. You basically there's you, there's enough mitigating circumstances right. in that terrible year where you could really kind of argue either way about whether or not he's going to be an elite or even above average quarterback. I think it's a great. Ch- I mean, given the price tag, I think it's a great chance for Miami to take on that. Talk about basically, a discount, right? Yeah, they, I mean, a second rounder and a fifth rounder for somebody who was at least a year ago thought to be a first, a, a top 10 pick. I, I mean, I, I really like my, I mean, you know, Arizona probably that they got what they could for. I, I'm not sure that they necessarily made a bad deal in no. that because they, you know, if they believe more in Kyler Murray, they were able to at least get something out of their pick last year. Inter- interesting, because but, I always th- I think I still think that Kyler Murray is a highly volatile pick mm-hmm. only based yeah. entirely on the fact that he's just so um, much shorter 
Yeah, I mean, he's the shortest quarterback I think ever to be drafted at this position. Um, and I mean, he I don't he doesn't make five ten. So and he's not a you know some somewhat of a huge guy. No, so. I, I think he's going to be an interesting case study on whether this the, the mm-hmm. height of quarterbacks really is this sort of like you know this threshold that you cannot pass, or whether you can make kind of something work in kind of a Doug Flutie sort of kind way. Of way. Well, you know what happened to Doug Flutie, but I think this is what Jones ha- the only thing that we can categorically say Jones has over Kyler Murray about seven or eight inches. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No. That's right. It, right. No. I, I mean, like, and certainly he doesn't have anything else in terms of performance. No. Nope, I mean, he he's, he looks he looks the part, but I'm not sure the stats are there to back him up. Yeah, it sure does. So, do, do you have any? Did you look down at the bottom of the draft at, at your Patriots? What did they do? Because it's probably something smart. Well, I mean, I don't think I, I don't think we can even evaluate how smart it was. Yeah, I mean, they 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 did sort of they made some good they made picks in areas of need. I mean, their their first round pick. Um, was a was a wide receiver, which is certainly mm-hmm. an area of need for them. Um, interestingly enough, I think they took another running back they in did, like the third or fourth odd, round, right? which I, you know I kind I kind of raised my eyebrows at as well. You wouldn't think of that as a position of need, but the Patriots have done well over the last few years with a cast of you know four or five different running backs in the backfield. So. Maybe they have some plan for that, or maybe it was just sort of the best guy available. All right. Um, they also got a cornerback, I think, in the second round, um, which is always, a, you know, cornerbacks, are, you know, are always an area of need, I think. They are. And, the, and of course, you know, they never are at the top. Yeah. I guess that's I mean, that's the, one, the one kind of, I guess, interesting note to the Patriots, given their offseason, is that they did not pick a, a draft a tight end. So uh, you know, there, there, there's not. And that's they, isn't they, Gronk retiring. So that, yeah. So I mean, they're down. Well, I mean, well, I, there's there's a few different opinions on this. I mean. What, what, you know, the rose colored glasses in Patriot lands are like, oh, this is a sign that Gronk's coming back next season. <laughs> I don't think that's the case. I think he is actually retired for good. Um, but I just think, however, the Patriots either did not, by the time it got around to them, they did not like whatever tight ends were remaining on the board and decided to go a different direction. They thought they had better value yeah. elsewhere. All right, so we have a couple of things we cannot um, ignore this Wednesday morning. There has been a, uh, we're in the midst of NHL playoffs, yes. so hockey playoffs, and, and the one fact that we can bring to the table here is randomness. Oh my goodness. So I think all the top, are all the top teams yeah, out? Yeah, I know. I Remember I talked about this before the playoffs even started, that this would be a true test of whether the playoffs are random, that Tampa Bay is going in with an his, historic, like, historic regular season, and they got bounced in the first round, didn't even win a game. Nothing. And then my, my hometown Calgary Flames were the top team in the West. Looking amazing. They won one game and one got game. bounced. And didn't the Capitals? The Capitals are out. Are no, out I mean, also. Yeah, no, I mean, all the top teams are out, basically. Interestingly enough, I think the Stanley Cup favorites probably at this point remaining, and everybody's going to love to hear this, are the Boston Bruins. Wouldn't it be great <laughs> no. if Boston won another championship? <laughs> Wouldn't that be something? That w- Yeah, that would be something. Yeah, no, some, no, I, don't think, I don't think that it. many people you know, are cheering no, for that. You know, but. I was I was in Boston this, this past week. Uh, my son is... Uh, Graduating from Berkeley College of Music, oh, and uh, and and he he says this Boston thing. They're getting used to it over there. Oh, I know. You know, it's like no, it's really affected the psychology of the city. They're a, not. They're not the, the sad sacks of uh, yeah. Of, 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 of they're not quite sports. sure what to be like angry and bitter about up there. So, anymore. Are, is anyone watching NHL? I mean, nationally, and because of, is this what does this do to ratings to the sport to see all? Well, their I mean, top it's, teams the NHL out? compared to the other ones has always been more of a regional sport. I mean, right. certainly it is, it is the case that the ratings do tend to go down. In Canada, when the Canadian teams are knocked out, so and, and there are no Canadian teams left in it, so I would. But I they're would probably ex- watching. No, yeah, that's right, that's right. I, I mean, it's still, and, and I mean, they're certainly watching. And some of the, ma- you know, the island, New York Islanders are in it. The Boston Bruins are in it. There's still some kind of, you know, major market teams in there. Um, 
But but I mean, I think probably, you know, having some of these sort of like name recognition teams like Washington or Pittsburgh not in it. I mean, that I guess you could argue that either way. It'd be interesting to look at the ratings because you, you can kind of imagine that like it, it it pulls some people in that they're sort of like their team has a real shot at this year as opposed to these Giants That's being right, in yeah. there. Um, but honestly, if you follow hockey, you know, your team's got a shot at it because if you it's make it, so you got a shot, unpredictable. You got it. It's, it's amazing. It's amazing. And it's almost I we we could kind of argue um whether like it's almost too unpredictable. I mean I do like I you, you guys know I kind of champion the NHL playoffs compared to the NBA playoffs because I feel like the NBA playoffs are too predictable. But well, I, I kind of wonder if the NHL ones are officially too unpredictable well, at this point. So Matty Datch just sent us a couple of numbers. So NHL playoffs are up one percent in, in viewership, which is good. I mean, yeah. they're, they're and it's not that's actually probably one percentage points, or is it? Or maybe it's one percent of its viewers. One would be very different because yeah. they don't have that much of a of a, uh, of, a of a viewership in tunnel. Although you are right about Canada. I mean, I was in Montreal. No, I mean, my, it, they it, go crazy. It, it, over it is. It. I mean, we we view it as a national sport. It really is more of a regional sport. I mean, how we could convince right. people in Florida who aren't retired Canadians to watch. Hockey, I don't know. But, but NBA, the NBA is, and they're in the midst of, of its playoffs. We'll talk about mm-hmm. that in a minute. They're down 19%, potentially because LeBron's not in it. Yeah. But it might also have to do a little bit with the with the forecastness of it. It just seems like the first round went exactly yeah. as predicted. Yep, as we right. knew before we started. As There's we only really the one compelling series, and it wasn't it was between five, the big teams. Right. So, right? So. so a 4-5 is a pretty close series, and yeah, no one really, but they're not going to go forward anyway. But here we now are in the next round yeah. of, the, of, the, of the NBA, and things are certainly much more interesting. Although no, I mean I think it's I, I mean especially in the I, I mean yeah I, I think basically every series has going uh, forward is good ha, has has a compelling argument to it I mean obviously I think you know the, the Rockets kind of Golden State is a series we probably shouldn't be seeing so early ideally right because those are two of the best teams in the league so that's a really compelling series and then in the East both those series are really compelling and could go either way. Like well, I, I do tight, think that right? there's yeah I mean both the Bucks sell and they're at one one in both series so the Bucks Celtics as well as the you know Sixers Raptors I mean I think both those series have a lot of should draw people in so yes there was a, a late game last night the Warriors defeated the defeated uh, the Rockets Houston again um, and again so they're up two to nothing that was actually supposed to was some some level build as the as the mini championship yeah the idea no, being I, the winner I mean, of those you know, two I, I mean we usually sort of think of what's the one team you know well if you had to rank teams in terms of their likelihood of knocking off Golden State I think Houston has to be the top of that ranking and I'm not sure what's going to happen now I mean there was an injury late yeah. last night uh, to 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 James Harden I don't know how serious it was oh I didn't actually see that, that um, yeah be, he got hit I he got hurt in the eye. Okay. And I don't know how, whether that was going to take him out for many games or much games at all, but but obviously the, the Rockets really are. And I mean, it's hard to say this, but he's kind of like the LeBron of the Rockets. Oh, without without him, I mean, we saw like you know even last year with Chris Paul going down. I mean, they need they you, need him. I mean, they need everybody at a hundred percent if they're going to have any, and they still might not beat Golden State. I mean, they that's really right. you know do need to kind of have it all together. So if, if if Harden is at all impaired, that's probably it for them. But it does look like a very different level game when I watch the Rockets. Play play and the Warriors versus I watched the Sixers play yeah Sixers versus Toronto I mean it just looked like a rough game they yeah. both had streaks of of missing many many shots in a row of making them no and I mean it, I, I think that was probably a rough game by their standards I think them playing at their best whether you know would be like I, I don't think we necessarily would want to forecast how one-sided the finals would be based on that game but 
that said, the finals will probably be pretty one-sided. They're going to be pretty one-sided. Now, the Bucks came in strong last night, and they uh, they defeated... I mean, they had a the good Celtics, game. The Celtics, yeah, yeah, and I mean... I Celtics mean, won the first game. Yeah, and the Celtics really came in strong in that first game and kind of surprised me. I thought, of those two series, I thought the Bucks-Celtics would be the less kind of, you know, even. Like, I thought the Bucks were going to kind of dominate the Celtics, but I'm glad to see the Celtics are making a series of it. I... Again, nobody wants. <laughs> nobody wants Boston necessarily to win another championship. Yeah, well, I, I I'm think, not even sure I'm cheering for that. But I, I would like to see a very. I would to like to see a competitive series between them. Yeah, no, I mean that. You know, anybody out there worried that Boston's going to just sweep all the major championships this year? I think there's a lot to <laughs> lot certain... to come for that to happen. All right. Well, now since we've got a lot of good news out of Boston, yeah. coming from uh, your side of the of the of the rack here, let's talk about. Oh, you don't have to. We don't have to talk about baseball. We've right been now. waiting. No. I've been waiting for the very end of the uh, our first half hour to talk about baseball. I did watch a, a a bit of the Yankee game last night. This is a bit of history because Sabathi was back. He pitched a yeah. very good game against Granky. He lost. Yep. Here you have basically. The the two of the I will say I'll, I'll put on record I mean I I'm you know kind of conditioned to hate most Yankees but Sabathi it's hard not to just respect and admire that that guy is still, still doing, doing it, it after all these years it's 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 impressive and listen also he was throwing about 92 that's not the 97 98 of what the young guys are doing today but he you know he paints the curve yeah. he's got multiple pitches he just knows how to pitch he's got and like I- an uh, late career Andy Pettit Kind of thing going thing, right? on and, and without the, all the box, but, but Granky was 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 better last night. And yeah. The Yankees did lose, but uh, and the Yankees are still in the thick of it. I mean, talk about being on the DL. I mean, this is a team that has like fourteen guys out or almost yeah, all their superstars. Except they've been like I, I, they've won like something like ten of the last twelve games. So I can't. I mean, I, you gotta wonder. But you know, I I, I mean, uh, terrible competition. They no, play. Right. They play. They've been playing the worst teams in the league, yeah. and that is the and and their pitching has, has certainly come along. So but, I mean, I guess if you were to have all these inner injuries, better you have them back. You know, when you're playing the bad teams and can win anyway. Well, speaking That's, of speaking of surprises, so in the American League East, we've had two surprises. We have a surprise Rays who mm-hmm. are just dominating and yep. rank are now already now people are believers in the beginning people were sort of you know the the forecasters and prognosticators and analysts were saying oh are you, you know, a believer games- yet i feel like it's still too early in the season I, for I'm us a- to talk about believing I, I i start believing in things in june <laughs> that's a, probably a better better bet but the of course that's good and meant from your perspective because well no i mean i don't Red want Sox are doing to terrible I, I, I am incentivized not to believe in the start of the season but they did at all they but- did sweep the red Sox did sweep the race yeah, now, what does that mean? Maybe little, maybe nothing. We don't yeah. really know much in the beginning. But baseball is actually somewhat, somewhat surprising. I mean, we're seeing more home runs than ever. We're seeing more walks than yep. ever. We're seeing more strikeouts than ever. And there's a lot of talk about the game and and um, how. What do you think? Are you happy with the way things are going, or you'd like to see well, things I mean, change in a different no, direction? No, I mean, I think it's a natural. I think things will evolve again. I, I mean, I, I certainly, I, I. This sort of like kind of lack of balls in play, I guess, more than anything like that, this strikeout or home run kind of thing that we've got going on currently is a little less interesting to me than our kind of, you know, the previous version of baseball that had a little bit more stuff like balls in play and stuff like that, right. a little bit more moving people around the base pass. I think, you know, I mean, home runs are very impressive when they happen, but the waiting time for them is can get a little dull even for somebody, an strike average out, baseball strike fan. Strikeout, walk, homer, strikeout, yeah, strike, of, walk. Right. And it's, so this is the I, game. I just... Uh, so in that way, I kind of feel like things are a little bit, you know, like like that aspect of the game has gotten a little bit less interesting. That said, I do not support some of the more extreme kind of strategies out there, like, like changing the rules of the game too much to try and combat that. Like, for example, like one of the kind of proposals out there to actually kind of limit uh, uh, shifting 
by like making sure that they're they're experimenting with this at the Atlantic League right now, um, potentially like limiting how much uh, uh, fielders can shift. Right in the field, absolutely. I, I don't so I I don't support that. You rule don't. Change. I, you know, I don't either because I think the, the players need to learn to adapt. But I did watch. You know, last night. I mean, uh, a rocket hit up the middle. Yeah, and Glaber right. Torres was standing right, to right the there. Guy, yeah, to think about you know, I think yeah. about the days, uh, Shane, when we, we we worked on fielding evaluation. We essentially would look at at the probability of a ball getting fielded based on how hard it was hit and where it was hit. And think about what in the old days we would have thought about a rocket up the middle. That would have been anyone, any oh. shortstop or, or, or second baseman who fielded that would have to have been the best shortstop in the league. Yeah, but now they're just standing yeah. right there. No, and it's <laughs> true because it, it, it was interesting that like back in the day when we were doing this, we were doing it with less high resolution data that's currently available we just kind of knew where the ball went and we had to kind of guess where the fielders were um and and so any kind of really good fielder that came out of our evaluation we didn't exactly know how much of it was positioning positioning versus you know just being really fast right um and these days that's an even more important distinction because the positioning kind of varies basically from batter to batter and so the the high you, you could do a much better job than we were able to do basically with this new data because you would know exactly where everybody was at the start of the play and you know i mean i could almost imagine um there's a, a new class of fielding awards out there. Fielding awards for the, for the, analy- for the analyst that <laughs> right, positions right. those guys. I love it. I think that's, a, that's a wonderful last thought before our, our half-hour claims yeah. our, our ends, because basically what you're saying is we can look at the starting position. Well, we can't because the data is not released. But those who have access to it could look at the starting position of all the fielders and essentially evaluate which yeah. which analyst team yeah, yeah. Is, uh, is positioning their yeah, players the best. Like, give, give a defensive award to the the the, uh, the, uh, the uh, stats group at the, at the Rays or the Yankees or whoever's doing a great Job. Maybe you'd have pushback from the fielders. They'd be like, "Well, I don't want to position myself optimally because I want to be able to actually show off my speed. <laughs> exactly. I don't want to be right where the ball goes." <laughs> but that's a great that's a great idea for a new award, Shane Jensen. Um, so this is actually this week this this Saturday is the uh, fastest two minutes in sports, the Kentucky Derby, and we have this morning joining us uh, Jeff Cedar. Jeff Cedar has been a longtime guest and friend of our show. He's the founder, owner, and president of EQB. Um, incorporated, which is a uh, is a is his farm, is his business, and what basically he does is he um, scouts out horses and he uses analytics to do it. Um, he's been in the horse business for over forty years, and he's a leading talent scout and buyer for young, unraced, thoroughbred horses. So, Jeff, Jeff, this is Adi Weiner. Welcome back to our show. Good morning. Glad to be here. Yeah, definitely. It, we know that it's it's spring when you, when you join us here to talk about the horse racing. So this is uh, an exciting time. I hope it's been a very good year for you. Um, so tell us a little bit, uh, just uh, uh, for our, our listenership, what exactly your your business is, and particularly what what's the process that you go through to evaluate young horses. Okay, well, I'm what's called a bloodstock agent, but I'm not the typical because I came out of the United States the beginnings of the sports medicine uh, movement in the Olympic Committee. And uh, so I use a lot of uh, big data analytics and uh, uh, biomechanics, exercise physiological measurements, in addition to what the traditional guys do, which is mostly eyeball intuition, pedigree, and uh, old wives' tales. So you're the the Bill Belichick of sports, yeah, uh, horse, I was horse racing. Years above before, him. except yeah. it was twenty years. And 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 I guess everybody else is like the Giants. We we had a nice analogy to the to the the Giants' approach to the NFL draft. So you have big data now. When you say big data, 
in, in horse racing, there's a couple kinds of big data that I can think of. I can think of big data being all the data that you can collect from actually the races themselves. But your big data, which is much older, is not from the races. It's, it's more um, medicinal, biological, and it's data yeah. that you collect yourself. Well, first of all, our track record for people who know about racing, there's about there's 100 races a year that are called grade one. They're not just stakes races. They're the best, toughest races in the world. And uh, like the World Championships of the Kentucky Derby, we've won 40 of them in the last several years. We've had a Triple Crown winner. Uh, we've been in the Kentucky. We've had as many as five horses in the Kentucky Derby starting gate. There's only 20 horses. In order to get in, you have to qualify. You're 20 qualify out of about 25,000 born a year, so your chances are terrible. And we've had as much as 20% of the gate era horses we found early. So we're doing something right. Yes, most of the databases are pedig- they're enormous. They're pedigree, or they're all the statistics that come from the racing form about the races, which are beyond voluminous. But we don't do that. Ours are things like the thickness of the, the left ventricle wall of the heart and the, uh, the, the cross-section of the spleen, the lungs, the clarity of the lungs, and echocardiography. And then we do slow-motion photography and digitize it and we know the length of the stance time the weight bearing time of the lead hoof and stuff like that so let me let me just put this in context for our listeners you you do this at about a year old correct and this is when they're we being start from, no no we start even earlier now, now earlier. we have dna wow we now you... dna markers for the stuff that we know is important so we're doing it right down to weanlings when they're a few months old but most of our work is when they're one year old or two years old so this is for the pur- purpose of purchasing correct yeah. it's not for pr- no, it's predict- not just purchasing it's also managing managing I, the the number one variable after we buy a horse or pick a horse for somebody is the trainer and the management mm-hmm. most of the trainers i mean it, most of the trainers is it's not uh, it's just very very different than the top ones and where you put the horse and how you manage the horse are critical. They're critical. So you've actually never, you've been on the show before, but this is a, this is a direction I think we've never gone in. Um, so tell us exactly what that, how that differs among different trainers and how your information and your analytical tools or toolbox, if you will, affects the way the horse is actually trained. Well, if for one thing, if the horse is, is going to be a, a distance horse, then we waste time and chance. It. 25% of the horses are hurt. Very enough to affect the rest of their career or not come out each year. That's huge. So you don't want to waste time, for example, with really fast workouts because you already know the horse is fast. And a lot of guys, they think, oh, that's great. In fact, there's two or three horses in the Derby this year that worked very fast within 10 days of the Derby at distances, and uh, uh, which is to me is, is moronic. It's like 40 years ago technology. They really uh, compromise their chances, and they're so- not from group. And they're not from great trainers. For example, uh, by my standards, April 22nd, when I'm, I'm one minute, 12 and four in a work, which is, you know, that's a racing speed. Uh, so did uh, Ruff, who was supposed to be one of the favorites 10 days ago, did a 113 work. So these are, uh, so let me just put this in, work, in context. So these are horses that are, 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 are entered into the Kentucky Derby. And they have they published? By right. And then within 10 days of the race, they're running based equivalent of a race in the workout. At a racing distance, uh, it's all kinds of decisions. There's minor lamenesses that really most trainers can't see. Really need the top people to see. And when you run a horse like that, you get a major lameness, or you get an attitude. Horses are very sensitive, very emotional. They they remember everything. If you're walking a yearling, if you've got a bad guy handling the horse, 
He's walking it through a gate at the farm, and he, he won't go through the gate. He slams it with a gate because he gets mad. You'll have trouble walking that horse through a gate the rest of its life. If you put it in a race when it hurts, it won't try. It's a lot of them won't try hard for the rest of their career. There's, there's, in, and so what surface it runs on, what distance it runs on, when the workouts are, uh, the handling around the barn. There, this is a very complex. Uh, very unforgiving business, and there aren't many guys who do it right. So uh, I think Baffert is considered the best of all trainers? Yeah, mm-hmm. he's one of the best. The problem with Baffert is he has so many wonderful horses that while his program works, not a lot of horses make it through there without uh, getting injuries, maybe not serious injuries, but injuries enough to compromise their career. So you got to have – that's part of my job is I buy horses only that are – that in the way they run and the way they're built, they, they are less likely to get hurt. They can take more abuse so they can stand a tough program like what Baffert does. So, uh, Jeff, g- given your success record, um, I, have you sort of seen like are people kind of coming like is more of this industry kind of coming around to more of these data analytic methods or well, I they, mean, do it, we- they do it wrong. They keep they're always, this, you know, the people who are cheap or wise asses, they come and talk to you for an hour. And they think they know it all. And it just like they're selling some of the data, the kinds of things we look at at our competitors. And I look at it; it's wrong. They did it wrong because they were never trained classically in biomechanics, so they'll have the wrong stride length, or they'll or they'll they'll focus on one or two variables that by themselves are meaningless. It's just there's a lot of crap out there, you know, half-assed. Is there so, been? Yeah, a- we're, we're there's enough interest so that there's some cheap. Uh, imitations out there, but not enough interest for people to really spend the time and money. So tell Except me, for, you know, I work for some of the biggest stables in the world. So right. So one of the one of the things, it. Jeff, that you, you that you brought to us was the the idea that pedigree just really doesn't have anything to say about prediction. I mean, it's 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 once to be you have to have a good pedigree to be in this group of what you said, you know, two thousand that are born well, every year. The pedigree database. It's all fads. I mean, it's who's ever the, the latest of the day. And that 90, if 90% of the offspring of the most famous stud can't outrun an old lady uh, downhill on roller skates, that's considered great. 10%, oh, my God. You know, who can live with those stats? So, uh, you know, it's a predictor. But it, it's, it's uh, you know, and then the, the horses that are considered the best, the best trainers and the best veterinarians and the best everything, and that's a huge advantage, huge so the data is crap in pedigree. Well, it's, and, uh, and it's even and but and it, it's the number one thing used by most people. But it's a very and it does have some predictive value. But compared to the physical stuff, and our database is going back thirty years. You know, seventy five thousand real racehorses, really good ones on racetracks, major racetracks. Compared to what the predictability of other variables is just weak. So well, I don't use it. Yeah, so you, but you mentioned that you're getting kind of into DNA data. A little bit earlier yeah. in the show, and that must be kind of exciting because basically that's, I mean, that's what pedigree is really a proxy for, right? Yeah, I mean, well, the, the, the pedigree is, the, you know, you're trying to, is the pro- probability of what you'll get. But, uh, and so, but I don't care about that. But, you know, if you, the probability you'll throw, throw snake eyes three times in a row is very low. But if you go to look at the horse and there it is, snake eyes three times in a row, there it is, there it is. These guys won't buy it because it doesn't have the pedigree. And I say, listen, the pedigree is the predictor of what you get. 
here it is. This is what you want. I love that. No the pedigree predicts it. Happen. Yes, yeah. the pedigree predicts it, and but it, but much better to look to see if it's there. So speaking of looking to see what's there, we have a field in the Kentucky Derby. Let's just ask you directly: Do you have any horses this year in the Kentucky Derby? No, I don't this year. This year is an off year for me. I won't go into why. All right. I've got a major client from foreign, and we're building from very young stocks, so we're not up to three-year-olds yet. You're not up to so three. That's right. one so, of the very few years when we don't have a couple in there. So have you looked at the at the list, uh, and do you have oh, any yeah, insights for us? I've gone over it a lot. You have. All right. So Omaha I Beach is the... About, f- we can talk about the specifics of this year's Kentucky Derby if you want. Absolutely. I think I... Or, or did you want to talk about the DNA? No, nah, let's talk about the specifics of the, this year's Kentucky Derby. What do you think, Shane? Good yeah, idea. sounds good. All right, so it is it is a great two minutes in sports, and there is a um, you know it's a big field. It narrows down by the time we get to the Belmont because uh, and those who who win, um, we actually had a triple count last year, which was surprising. It's it's rare, but uh, and and uh, and we've had six favorites in a row. So the favorite this year is Omaha Beach. Um, uh, the latest numbers I think are seven to two. Um, what do you think of Omaha Beach, and why should we be uh, attracted or 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 uh, averted from Omaha Beach? Well, a very famous guy in horse racing said, if you want to look like a perfect ass, say something definite about a horse. <laughs> but I think Omaha Beach is not going to win the Kentucky Derby. And so you just said something definite about a horse. All right. Well, we'll hold you to it. So why is right. why is Omaha Beach the favorite? And then then you'll tell us why you think. Well, uh, he ran a, a, a very impressive uh, uh, at Oaklawn in the, uh, you know, in the Arkansas Derby and then the Rebel. Mm-hmm. And he's he's running an off track in the slop. He's won. Mike Smith, the famous jockey, took off of roads took off of uh, Roadster to ride Omaha, which tells you he's ridden them both, and that tells you he thinks it's better. The horse has a quarter crack, which is a crack in its hook, which hurts like hell. And they patch it and they do stuff to it, so they say it's a non-issue. But Big Big Brown had a quarter crack when he stopped in the Belmont and didn't get his. Uh, uh, Triple crown. All right. The, uh, also, Omaha Beach was born April 24th. Think about that. If you're born, it's almost May. If you're born in May versus February, that's 36 versus 33 months, about 10%. It's the equivalent of a 14-year-old running against a 16-year-old. Also, he's not that fast. The fastest horses in the race are Tax, Wara, Will, and Spinoff. Tax got the two-hole. Wara, Will got the one-hole. Tax is by far the fastest. Uh, uh, that means they're, they're, they have to come out and go to the front. It'll be crushed against the rail. We had a horse that happened to us once. Spinoff got the 19 hole, so it'll need the speed to go up to, to get. Uh, but but none of those are going to win it either. So tax anyway. is not going to win it either. So so who do no. you think? So, so tax. Well, the reason they're not going to win it is because they slow down. They, they, they slow they down too much. The thing about the Kentucky Derby is it's longer than any of them have ever run. It's a mile and a quarter. These guys have gone at most a mile and eight. That's a big deal. These are three-year-olds. Horses aren't mature till they're five. These are adolescents. The Kentucky Derby was the debutante party. It was the coming out for the new crop. Now it's become the be-all, end-all. These are young horses. They've never gone this far, so you have to predict how far they'll go. Tax is the fastest, but its fatigue curves are not good enough to win this race. That means the logarithmic logarithmic curve that shows the, the decay of his velocity in his races, which nails... For repetitive motions in a sport like this, can can you can extrapolate out how they fatigue, what their times were at the splits, to, and then to see what their time's going to be at the longer distance. 
And at the rate he fatigues, he's not gonna, he's not going to be competitive in a mile and a quarter. So you have taxes data from previous races, which were much shorter, and you can see how tax and other horses like him have been slowing yeah, down in the last mile of furlong. Yeah, but they're not. It's not going to happen. He's, he's going to fatigue. He's got. He's so he's faster, but there's a cost to that. And and if he's, the, the, it's unlikely that they'll be able to rate him and make him go slower. Besides, in the Kentucky Derby, there's 20 horses. He, the traffic is killer. If you're a closer, you're kind of you can be screwed because there's nowhere to run when you need to screw, run. And if you go way wide, each path wider costs you a length at the end. So there's a wall of horses there when you need to make your run. So you have. Uh, so let's talk about some of the other leading candidates for winning. So game winner is uh, as I have it at five to one. That's just a little bit behind Omaha yeah. Beach. What do you think of game think winner? About he's winless at three. He hasn't won. He was two close seconds, but that's not a single win this year. Well, there were uh, at least four horses that won the Kentucky Derby and were not winners at three. Super Saver, uh, Mind That Bird, it was 50 to one. Funny Side, the New York uh, horse that was a, a Cinderella horse, and Giacomo, but still he hasn't won at three. Uh, he's in the 16 hole, right? And he's not the fastest horse. So he's probably not going to get the lead. And then he's got, he's going to get, the equivalent of a, uh, a tornado of darkness face from what's in front of him, or he has to go wide. It's not good. So let's 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 close but her. His, his fatigue curve is good enough to win. He's right up near the top. So basically, what you say is that game winner has a lot of endurance, and that in this longer race that we've never seen before, he predicts well to close well. But your your nevertheless his position and never having won before might work against him. So what do you think is? Well, got he's the- won before, but he hasn't won at three. He was close seconds. Yeah, he's got the endurance, but he's going to have to find a path to run. And uh, he's in such an outside post position. I don't think he's going to. I think he's not going to be up front early. And that wouldn't give him a hard, hard. Uh, that is going to give him a hard, hard time finding a lane, right? Some so, luck in his path. So, who do you think? So let's 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 finish up with it, getting you some get some specific picks. Who do you think has got the best shot? Well, I'm going to tell you. I'm going to give you a thirty to one and a fifty to one shot that I think are right there that, that nobody else will say. Okay, here we go. So, listeners, this is some this is some betting information. All right, what do you got? I cutting humor, and he's got Todd Fletcher, one of the greatest trainers of all time. Uh, as his trainer, Todd Fletcher's cutting humor. I think it has the best. Well, I know he has the best fatigue curve. So if he gets a, if he gets a clear run, the next one is, nobody will pick. It's fifty one. Is Gray Magician? The problem with Gray Magician is he just came back from Dubai. He went over there to run those zillion dollar races, and he didn't get back till like April something. Generally, that knocks the the Jesus out of it. All right, so let me let me ask you the obvious statistical question. If you think these two horses are very good, yet the line is very distant on both of them, what are what are what is everyone else seeing that you are ignoring? All right, I got two more things. Maximum security and long range Todd are the other two that you really got to consider. They're 10 to 1 and 30 to 1. Okay, so here's our we got we got Okay, I'll tell you it's not that complicated. They're looking at how fast they ran and who they beat. I'm looking at how fast they, how you know, how they tire. I look at how they slow down, not how they fast they go. And if you look at the, the horses, are they run these fatigue curves? I've done this for a long time. Unless they're lame or injured, they will run pretty much the same fatigue curve every time. It's repetitive motion. You can nail their logarithmic curve or their fatigue and just extrapolate it and see what the time is when they're longer. 
and it's very accurate unless they get, you know, they're lame, they're hurt or uh, sick or they get blocked. You know, they have a trouble call. And that's and nobody else is looking at that. So basically it's everyone else is. They, they just don't they don't look at what could happen. They only look at what has happened. So so is it really that they're just looking at their best times in the previous races and kind of ignoring the fact that it's they a different look, length? Yeah, they or they, they're just kind of more you extrapolating? Read, you read the articles. They'll discuss the pedigree, who they beat, who rode them, what happened in each race. I'm telling you, guys come back from races, and they give you this long story about what happened, blah, 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 this and that, and they think it's all important, and it's the same fatigue curve every time. Remarkable. Get it. So, so I love I love these four. I'm just going to repeat them and see if I get them right. So Cutting Humor... And you have Gray Magician. Those are huge long shots, but they have great fatigue curves and maximum security and long-range toddy. They That's also have it. good fatigue curves. And they're long shots because basically they haven't run particularly fast in the shorter lengths, and they don't have the breeding history that... Uh, or they the, get beat by one of these other horses at a shorter distance. All right. So that's an interesting question for us. Do we actually bet these? Or or for top three, what would you recommend? Bet them all to, for winning or, or, or take them as top uh, threes? Why not? You know, they call the exotics. You know, you can bet first and second or first, second, and third. Yep. And you can box it, so any combination. I would use them in the exotics. It, but, I mean, if you want to know what I do, I will bet on those four horses to win. Excellent. I love it. We got some solid advice from Jeff Cedar. I'd love, I'd love, always love this uh, this episode when you bring you on. Don't you on. not game winner. I mean, game winner, I've, I've got a, he's got the fatigue curve, but, you know, he's just got some some things that are against him like that post position all right well well jeff i'll have to say goodbye our our, our second half hour has closed thank you for joining us this morning it was a, a wonderful half hour so that closes our second half hour of Wharton Moneyball. We will join you after the break with our uh, longtime visitor and guest of our show, Neil Payne. We'll see you soon. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Wharton Moneyball, where sports and statistics collide. I'm your host this morning, Professor Adi Weiner, Wharton School of Business, Department of Statistics, and I'm joined in the studio with my colleague and friend, Shane Jensen, also of the Statistics Department of the Wharton School. And we just concluded a wonderful, entertaining annual interview with Jeff Cedar, our horse racing expert and basically horse picker. Um, and we're now going to uh, bring on our show... Neil Payne. Neil Payne has been with us from the very beginning when he lived in Philadelphia and would join us in the studio. Welcome back to our show, Neil Payne. Hey, guys. How are you? We're terrific. It's uh, Shane here and, and, and Adi and Kate and, and Eric are out this morning. So, uh, But we always love having you on, Neil, because you can just get everything. So we just finished a great Kentucky Derby segment, which is I wonder, is that in your you know pantheon of top sports? What do you know about the Kentucky Derby? No, I think, you know, you finally found a sport that, uh, you know, goes past the limit of my ability to analyze. I, I don't think I've ever even written about horse racing, uh, which is funny because in the time I've been at 538, there's been not one but two Triple Crown winners um, after that long drought uh, of there being none. So 
kind of wish I knew more about it, but that is sort of uh, pushing the limits, I think, for me. We have found something that's actually, so we got some really interesting insight, and I, I want to throw you, maybe I'm throwing you a bone for 538 to research, and I don't think we're going to research it. But Jeff Cedar basically says that they've got it all wrong in the forecasting department, and that instead of looking at the actual performance in the in the, these races, these three-year-olds haven't run distance races yet, and that they just look at their speed and their and their pedigree, and what they should be doing is looking at their rates at which they slow down. So he calls it his, log, his logarithmic decay function. But basically, if you look at their performance in the last 20 seconds of a short race, you can see them slowing down, and they slow down at different rates. And he claims that that's the best predictor of, of who will win in these very short, um, in these slightly longer Kentucky Derby races, which are run by young horses. And he actually gave us like four or five long shot picks, which he says are completely bettable. So you can throw them out there, uh, maybe cutting humor, gray magician. These are things that, that we just learned. Maybe these are this is something you can write about. What do you think? I'm get, I, I think I'll get on the phone with uh, the the bookmakers right now with those picks. <laughs> yeah, I know. We're, really we're actually we, we got uh, four. Yeah, there you have it. <laughs> just the um, the idea. It's it's a great forecasting exercise, right? Especially for folks like us. Uh, just to think about, like, how do you predict the future with this kind of limited information, some of which is pertinent to the, the thing that you're trying to predict, but some of which is not. And, I mean, the, the, the lengths of these races only get longer, right? Like, uh, yep. you know, people famously, the Belmont is, like, so much longer than the other ones um, that, that these Triple Crown horses are trying to um, kind of go, even after having won. Yeah, the, the the first two legs of the triple crown. So it is. It's a nice forecasting exercise, right? I think it's just the rates. I think the race lengths start. And there's these young races are are mile and an eighth, a mile and a sixteenth, and then the Kentucky Burgers, I think a mile and a quarter, and then the Belmont Stakes a mile and a half. And these are enormously different. So I like that as a possibility. Maybe five thirty will write something. But let's go back to your wheelhouse and speaking about forecasting in a whole new arena from from something that's similar but not quite, which is the NFL draft. So you've written about the NFL draft. You've talked about the NFL. Draft, and I think this is a particularly interesting NFL draft. I'd like to ask you about a couple things. First of all, the great quarterback sort of uh, Giants kind of craziness that we saw, <laughs> and then even I mean, I have to tell you, we've been watching Kyler Murray ourselves for a long time, and I thought that in the, we originally began by believing that he wouldn't go in the top ten because he's just so uh, so athletically different uh, stature wise than a typical quarterback. But then, of course, we saw the the tremendous interest, and we realized he would go number one. So, can you? Weigh in on on forecasting performance uh, at the professional level from collegiate um, information and particularly these two quarterbacks. Yeah, and are we missing something with this Daniel Jones thing, or (laughs) was that just as bad a pick as we think it is? Yeah, I mean, it seems pretty bad. Um, uh, uh, You you talked about originally thinking Kyler Murray might not go, uh, you know, as high as he did. I thought originally he was going to play baseball. I I think, um, uh, you know, when I first sort of wrote about his decision between the two. I, I don't know how you guys feel, but I still feel like, you know, I mean, if you're if you're the number one overall pick, maybe you should play football. But up until that point, if it was looking like he, you know, was not going to be a top ten pick in the NFL, still kind of feel like you should just play baseball. I mean, like the the, the lifespan of your your career is so much longer, uh, and, and your potential earnings if you hit as like a Bryce Harper-esque, you know, type of uh, star, you can make a lot more money playing baseball. But I guess now, you know, as the number one overall pick, 
Uh, I'll flip it around on you guys before we even get into the NFL draft. What do you guys think that uh, did Kyler Murray make the right decision to to play uh, football? Well, I mean, I. I personally, given the choice, you know, would rather play baseball just because you don't have giant linebackers coming at you while you're trying to do your thing. Um, but, um, but I, and, and I, and I agree that, like, I mean, you kind of put it as sort of a conditional sort of earnings thing, like conditional on you making it into Major League Baseball. I think your earnings are going to definitely exceed. Uh, what you would get in the oh, in in football? It's just I I think Kyler Murray probably maybe he's a little bit more risk averse. He doesn't want a condition on making it to Major League Baseball, right? He still and needs think, to make it. That's again, the point. having that you know somehow I guess he he anticipated that he would be a top pick, and the kind of guaranteed money that comes with that top pick certainly exceeds what he's going to get at least before he makes it to major league the major leagues and major league baseball. Right. He's going to get about 35 million I think about yeah. potential value for for just this contract that seems I mean we think of him as a sure thing in baseball but there are no sure things and he's he's got to play in the minors he's got to be he's got to develop for a few years so I think that is basically a short term bet and I think he probably made the right one. I think the real that's turned around again is what's your over under on the number of games he's going to play in baseball in the future. Oh, that's interesting, the idea that he still could kind of come oh, back. Yeah. I mean, we've seen, uh, I guess, some of these other guys, like Russell Wilson, much less talented baseball player, I guess. I mean, mm-hmm. good enough to be drafted, but certainly not uh, a number one, uh, you know, first-round pick in baseball. And he has broken camp a couple times, but not really, you know, taken it all that seriously. I just don't know if we're in an era anymore where you would see a guy, you know, maybe... A, t- he, a Tim Tebow of sorts. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Tebow, Tebow is an interesting Triple A. I, I was thinking uh, of Bo Jackson and yeah. Sanders, these guys that were, you know, sort of two sports stars in an era that may have been the last time where you could, like, legitimately be, you know, a top player uh, in two professional sports at once. I just don't know if that's possible. So why anymore. not? Why, what's changed? I mean, what, why can't uh, well, Kyler Murray play some baseball in the offseason? Well, I think specialization has become so huge, uh, you know, from the the very start, you know, when you're a youth player onward, that the talent levels have risen so much in each of these sports, I think, as a result, that you can't just, you know, dabble in one of them or, or uh, you know, kind of play, oh, you know, I'm going to play this in the off season, and uh, you, you have to just take it seriously 365 days a year, I think, to be a professional caliber um, you know, a uh, uh, top level tier player in each sport. So I think that has changed even since, you know, when we were growing up. I, I think uh, it's gotten so much more specialized at the youth level. And also, if you think about it, like what conditions, uh, obviously, you know, he can try to play it in the summer and the, the, um, the seasons kind of sync up where if you're not playing football, you can play baseball. But you know, if if it's a thing where he starts to concentrate on baseball later in his career, something would have had to have happened in his NFL career. And and if you think about things that sort of stall out an NFL career, injuries are the number one thing. Yeah. And so you're thinking like, well, you know, if he's injured, too injured to play football or too injured to be interested in playing football, that's probably going to eat into some of the things that made him a top uh, pick in, in baseball, too, like the athleticism and the defense and things like that. And the speed, So yep. I think that makes it a little bit tougher to envision. I would love to see it happen, though. I, I you know, Bo Jackson and Deion Sanders are two of my favorite athletes of all time. 
Uh, and so um, I kind of miss those days. And it's a little sad that with things being so specialized, you, you see the odds of that happening being so much lower. But, Neil, one of the things that, you, that made those two guys special is that they were really elite at both. I think I think Bo Jackson was an all-star in both sports yes. in the same season. And that has never happened and probably will never happen again. I think what's much more likely with Kyler Murray is he flames out in football. Yeah, no, I, I and I think that's right. I mean, I think what you, to, to have this sort of two-sport athlete now, I think Neil's right. I think it, it just the logistics of doing two sports simultaneously – I just can't imagine the teams that you're going to be signing with supporting that. I, I can't imagine being, yeah, being able to perform at that kind of elite level in two sports simultaneously. So you're really talking about kind of doing them more sequentially. Yeah. Um, and I think it would have to involve, I mean, the two scenarios that you, one of them you touched upon is that, you know, somehow he gets injured in football, but maybe he gets injured in such a way that he can still perform in baseball. And I'm not quite sure how one would come up with that story uh, or he f- kind of flames out in football and, and, and he flames out in football mm-hmm. not through injury reasons or not through a way that would impact his baseball performance so neil what's your over under one under, game under, I'll, I'll throw one out for you and I'll, I'll, I'll get three out with one my answer is one are you over or under uh i'm thinking so this is major league career games. major league career For games I'm, I'm going with the over under of one <laughs> man i, I I think I'll still take the under. I don't think he'll play. Given that he picked football, given that he was picked number one overall in the NFL draft, I just don't think that he'll return to it. But then again, I mean, we've seen Tim Tebow. I think it's fair to say the over-under on Tim Tebow's career major league game right now uh, would be over one. Uh, yeah. And some of that is it's the Mets, and we can, <laughs> we can talk all about how you know that organization is almost uniquely – suited to make, you know, kind of a cynical uh, cash-grab move to bring up a guy who's not a major league caliber player to try to draw fans. Well, but I have to say, Neil, I wanted to get Tyler to the Mets. Falls into that too. <laughs> <laughs> so, T- Tebow, you've been famously down on Tebow since the minute he was drafted, or not drafted, but assigned to, you know, single A. Um, and, yes. and but your position was that guy isn't a, isn't a major league player and this is offensive to even have him hanging around i think that summarizes <laughs> it right and of yes, course it is the right. mets and then for you know and those who are listeners who don't know this about that the mets are actually your team yeah and, and uh you love them have you been to any games yet this year uh yeah i went to uh a game that they lost and that felt pretty uh normal, uh, <laughs> pretty normal. but i believe they're ago. they're competitive so where are they this year they are competitive uh they're about 500 uh they had a walk-off win last night on a sack fly uh in the bottom of the ninth after blowing a three-run lead uh and that's also sort of par for the course but they're in it they're in the mix as you you guys uh know you know being in philly the phillies are all there the it's braves and the nationals tough. Yeah, it's a very tough NL East uh, field this year, and so it's kind of fun that the Mets are actually part of it, but I'm sure by the end of the year, by September, they'll, um, they'll, uh, Mr. Tebow will be making his, um, his Major League debut, regardless of whether those games actually are in the midst of a pennant race also, I mean, which is kind of funny. Which is crazy. All right, we didn't intend to get to baseball so early because I wanted to get us back to, to, uh, to, our, to our quarterback selections. We talked about Kyler Murray, so how about the, the Giants pick? Jones, tell me, uh, tell me what you thought about that. Well, I mean, everybody has been killing Dave Gettleman for that. And I almost feel like, I mean, I want to be the contrarian and be like, you know, well, actually, we don't know with any kind of certainty that he's going to be a bust. Because, I mean, people are basically flat out assuming that he's going to be a bust. 
But by the same token, you know, from all the models that I've seen that do try to predict quarterback performance um, coming out of college, uh, one of the things that they focus on is something like completion percentage. Daniel Jones has really poor completion percentage at Duke. Uh, and, you know, they try to, even when you adjust for the depth of target and the strength of competition that he faced, he, uh, one of our uh, colleagues at 538, Josh Hermsmeyer, did this, and he found that Daniel Jones, uh, his completion percentage season was two percentage points lower than you would expect from the average NCAA, uh, maybe like, you know, BCS conference quarterback uh, put in the same situation, making the same types of throws. By contrast, Dwayne Haskins and Murray were nine percentage points above expected in terms of their completion percentage adjusted for depth of target. So I think those that type of metric and some of the grading that they do at a place like Pro Football Focus all sort of have this consensus that Daniel Jones was not a first-round talent. And I, I don't have a problem with taking someone like that uh, if you're the Giants, but at least wait for him to fall to 17, wait for yeah. him to fall to one of these lower picks. And, and Gettleman is trying to do this control afterward we're saying oh i knew for a fact that there were certain teams that would have you know traded up to try to pick him but it's like man you know as, as the number six pick you've got josh allen you've got some of these other elite defensive players on the board at that point you know it, would it really be the end of the world if somebody swooped in and took daniel jones it's almost like they'd be doing you a favor by, by coming in and, and yeah somebody who isn't an elite quarterback talent. i mean it just doesn't see i don't know it just seems like uh one last thing i'll say is it's interesting to me that in the what is it what has it been 15 years since uh, Cade and Richard Thaler wrote that paper about overconfidence in the um, NFL draft, it se- still seems like there are a number of teams that haven't really learned the lessons of that, the lessons of trading down to get value, the lessons of not being overconfident in trying to pick your guy at, at Although I will say that, that there's been less trading up. I mean, one of the things that that, uh, that Cade and, and Richard Thaler wrote about was that there was a w- tremendous willingness from, from lower-ranked teams or, or teams with lower picks to trade up for those higher ones. Mm-hmm. And so what you're pointing out is that it's actually the Giants failed to capitalize going down, le- recognizing that they were... And they ended up doing something even stupider, which is take a position, someone that no one really would have taken, probably not even at 17. Or, sure. or, or, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm paraphrasing Neil a bit here, it's... It's that given that you're going to be doing so, – I mean, it's, it's okay to do something unconventional, right, with your, with your draft pick if you see something in a particular talent that no other team sees. But if you are going to do something unconventional, you might as well take advantage of the fact that it's unconventional and right. do it with a, with a with less a valuable pick. pick. Yeah, you know? three right, first-round exactly. picks. If everyone else thinks that Daniel Jones is a late first-round talent or something like that, you the only way to extract value by getting Daniel Jones in that situation is even if you think that he's going to be you know better than that and you have the highest estimation of him, which probably suggests that you're kind of playing into the the loser's curse also right like this idea that you you know you're sitting around there's 31 other GMs you're the one that thinks the highest of Daniel Jones, which is more likely that you're smarter than those other 31 guys and and you know more about how good this guy is or that. You're actually the the fool in the room. The fool in the room, as we like to say. Yeah, but but Neil, I want to. I want to ask you something specifically because 
one of the things that almost everything we read about Jones indicates that he's just not good or certainly not worthy of the Giants, you know, high rank pick. So just a little background. He's at Duke. Now, that's certainly not known as a college football powerhouse. Basketball, yes, but football, no. (laughs) Um, He was a I mean, I just threw out this number. His his high school ranking wouldn't have he wouldn't have played for Yale. I mean, where the where does that put him? Um, You know, so. What what did what is there to go for? I mean, where, what did Gittleman see? I mean, is it? I mean, how did he even get on the radar? I mean, what's so good about him? I mean, I, one thing we do know is he's tall, right? So that that's good. Does he have like <laughs> great combine facts? I mean, what what is there on the plus side? Well, yeah, I mean, I, Gettleman I, I, anecdotally did talk about uh, the, his his performance in the Senior Bowl. Oh, three plays, right? right. The oh, three Senior Bowl yeah. seemed to be sort of a factor there, which is interesting. Um, you know, we always talk about these combine warriors kind of rising up in the ranks. Um, and, like, you know, even if they don't have great stats in college, they they did really well in this like kind of controlled environment. Uh, and and I think there might be some kind of effect. Also, I'd be curious to look at this if players who do really well in these postseason sort of like showcase uh, bowls uh, for seniors or juniors or whoever um, also get some kind of undue boost. Uh, to their uh, draft status because it does seem like, you know, we saw this with the other Josh Allen, not the Josh Allen from Kentucky, but the one um, uh, that the Bills drafted uh, two years ago. He had a fantastic, I don't know if it was like the, the East-West Shrine, you know, one of these like uh, senior bowl type things. Uh, he had a fantastic performance in that, and I think that also sort of helped solidify him uh, in that group of, of great quarterbacks that also included you know, Baker Mayfield, Josh Rosen, uh, you know, uh, Sam Donald, all those guys. So I'd be curious about that. Uh, that probably deserves some research. But in terms of what he also saw, there was all this talk about uh, David Cutcliffe being his coach at Duke, and famously he was Pey- uh, I said Peyton Manning, Eli Manning's coach oh boy. at That's Ole it. Miss. And there's that Manning connection, and, uh, you know, that has been played up. I don't know whether that was a factor or not. And to, to be honest, I, I'm tired of hearing about all this David Cutcliffe stuff because if you still had that completion percentage that's two percentage points below expected with this great quarterback whisperer coach at Duke, then shouldn't that be a negative against you going into the pros that even with a great coach, you were not able to do more? I know he had a bad offensive line. You know, Duke is not known, like you said, for being a powerhouse, but it's 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 kind of a head scratching move, and it's one of those ones where it just seems like, you know, uh, one, a case of one GM just going off the reservation. But then once it happens, it's, it's, it's sort of doubling down and digging into this position where basically, if Daniel Jones is not a good quarterback and the Giants don't, you know, turn things around within the next couple of years. Uh, that's basically it for Gettleman as a GM. Like, Probably for any team. Yeah. 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 I mean, All right. already kind of washed out with the Panthers, and now this. Yeah, terrific. All right, so let's change sports. We have an, a very exciting uh, NBA uh, playoffs going on, and you've written yeah. extensively about this. So uh, lots going on. These are very star-driven teams. Um, so where would you like to start? You want to start with the Warriors and the Rockets, or you want to go back to Philly? And what, what's interesting? Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I, I'm interested in all of it. The Warriors and the Rockets is probably most recent uh, because it happened last night, and the Warriors are at 2 nothing in that series right now. Armando gives them a uh, an eighty four percent chance of beating the the Rockets, and from that point, it's pretty much smooth sailing for them. Uh, we give them a forty eight percent chance of winning the finals right now 
which is wow. double that of any other team. The Raptors uh, are second there at 26%, and then the Bucks at 14%. Wow, the, ra- um, the Raptors. Big, big win for the Bucks, by the way, um, last night yeah. uh, as well. Um, but, yeah, so, uh, you know, I think after that, with that game one, um, the way it came down to the officiating at the end, uh, and then that like manifesto that the Rockets apparently sent to the league, complaining about all the missed calls and everything. I'd love to talk about the Rockets because we're seeing this, you know, the 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 full manifestation of their sort of efficiency seeking foul grubbing. Like I don't even know what to call it anymore. But but that was peak Rockets. When so they, so let's let's, uh, let's complained about those calls and then. <laughs> Set that memo or whatever it was. So let's set the stage here. First of all, we're talking to Neil Payne on uh, 538, and this is Wharton Moneyball, and we're now about to to launch into a discussion about the Rockets. Um, I just discovered this somewhat recently. I'm not, basketball is a little lower down on on my trajectory of of interests. Um, But what I discovered is this, (laughs) watching uh, uh, Harden play, he's got this way of, I hope I'll do justice to this, of shooting a three-pointer. And then kind of falling backwards in such a way that it makes it either appear or it actually is uh, such that he's being blocked from landing. Now, this is, an, this is mm-hmm. a rule that I didn't know, that, that it's considered a foul if you don't give the shooter room to land. But he's like out in outer space, you know, three, he's like mm. 25 feet from the basket where there's an emptiness. And somehow he's not being given enough room to land and he gets a, fa- he gets a foul and the three-pointer, which is three shots. Um, and or he makes the shot and he gets another shot. I don't know how exactly it works. And this is probably the most efficient play in all of basketball. And Harden is the the world's greatest at this. How, how am I doing? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that's like kind of a staple of James Harden uh, over the past few years. Uh, in 2017, Harden drew I want to say 126 uh, shooting fouls while shooting three pointers, and uh, that was more than any other team uh, did in the league. Uh, like he himself. What uh, uh, was far higher than any other team at, at drawing three-point fouls. But what's interesting is that number has sort of gone down. So in 2017, I think that represented 16% of all of his threes he was fouled on, uh, his three-point attempts. Uh, this year, as he became the first player in NBA history to attempt a thousand threes in a season, he was only drawing three-point shooting fouls on about 9% of his uh, three-point attempts. So there was a concerted effort after he became this player that was, you know, light years ahead of, he was the Babe Ruth in, in, in uh, 1919 or whatever, 1920, uh, of drawing three-point shooting fouls. The reps had this concerted, you know, they met together and started thinking like, you know, we have to have more clarity about how we're calling these fouls. Uh, and in addition to the landing zone thing, Harden is also the master of sort of hooking his arm. Like the second that a defender out, out in the perimeter sort of puts his arm in the wrong place, Harden hooks his arm under it and then goes up with this uh, a shooting attempt that never really has any intention of going into the basket. It's solely done to try to draw a foul, and technically it is a foul, and so he gets the three free throws. And those are by far the most efficient type of play that you could have. Better than a, a, a we, we talked to my old friend Kurt Goldsberry, who has a great book about um, some of this stuff coming out this week. Uh, he makes the point that a wide open Steph Curry three is nowhere near as efficient as James Harden getting to the the free throw line. Uh, and, and so, wait, wait a minute. Let me just intercept here because yes, mm-hmm. conditional on him getting to the free throw line, but what is his probabilities of getting that call? And, and you, you actually are su- well, suspecting down. that it's gone down. And has it gone down? It because has. is it because the 
the the refs are not calling them? Or is it a rule change, or is it Harden, yeah. or is it defenders? Which ones, or all? Well, I think defenders are becoming more smart about not getting suckered into that type of play also, which is one of the reasons why Harden had to adopt, uh, he does this step-back move now, which is, very much uh, bending the rules of what might be considered traveling also, uh, but it takes advantage of the fact that you have a gather step and then an extra step uh, before you shoot, which is usually done in the direction of the basket, but Harden realized that technically you can get that step going away from the basket as well to give yourself more separation. So he started doing these step-back threes uh, and sort of because the rest stopped calling so many of these three-point shooting fouls and they, they were not as liberal about uh, their interpretation of what constitutes a foul. So it's really Harden is playing games with the refs because the refs make such a, a huge portion of his um, his strategy and really the rocket strategy as a whole. And that's what I find fascinating about it is his, his rate of drawing fouls goes down in the playoffs every year. And that might be one of the reasons why we should ask whether this rocket strategy, uh, which is obsessed with milking every bit of efficiency out of every possession – is, is it doomed to not work as well in the playoffs because the, the, they officiate the playoffs differently than they do in the regular season? And if you rely so much on the rest to sort of generate your wins, does that you know is that a limiting factor for some of this efficiency-seeking behavior? So a couple of my reactions, first of all, is Harden's a genius to even figure yeah. this out. I mean, this is exactly in many ways what you look for in sports to someone to come up with something that's just orthogonal, using the math term for not in the right, just or, a different or, direction. Or, or, or certainly pushing the boundaries in a very Belichickian kind, kind of way, of way. Or I something. Mean, realizing yeah. that you get an extra step when you're taking a shot and not doing it in the direction of the basket, giving himself more room and just creating this efficiency out of the air. But I like your point that this doesn't work in the playoffs. I thought the Rockets were the team that's been built to beat the Warriors in the playoffs. Yes, uh, that is sort of the way that they've seen themselves, and that's the way, uh, especially after last year's loss, where you really could spin it uh, as, you know, if, if a couple of calls ha- had gone their way, if Chris Paul doesn't get injured in game six of that series, but especially if they don't miss a technical 20-plus straight threes, which, by the way, for a team that became the first in NBA history to take more threes than twos in a season, the irony that in the biggest game of of the franchise, you know, in in decades, they would uh, have this incredible cold streak from three was not lost on anyone. Um, But, uh, yeah, this team has had the words in their sights all year long. Uh, and But I still kind of wonder whether they, you know, the Warriors are more of a conventional team. We think of them as being, you know, the Steph Curry shooting from 30 feet away from the basket. Uh, but more and more, ever since they got uh, Kevin Durant, they they take mid-range shots. I mean, Sean Livingston loves to take mid-range shots. Durant made a couple of daggers from, you know, the elbow last night's game in the, when the Rockets had cut it close in the final couple minutes. And and so, in a weird way, the Warriors have kind of become more an avatar of the old way of playing the game, taking those mid-range shots the Rockets basically never, ever take. They would rather do anything than take a, a jumper from the elbow. And the Warriors have sort of leaned into that. It's kind of an interesting dynamic in, in terms of the way the game is going. And, you know, it's a battle for the soul of basketball and the way it's played in some ways. 
Well, I think it is, I think honestly, I think we're going to see changes. I think basketball is a sport that changes potentially more rapidly than the others, not in the rules necessarily, but I think in the way it actually gets played. I don't recognize basketball the way it's played today from the way it was played in the nineties. Um, but just to, just to finish up, um, since we're coming to the end of our half hour, just you, you mentioned that the Warriors are about eighty four percent to win. That's with their two um, their two victories already, so they're up two nothing. What right. were they before the series started by your model? So uh, I'm going to have to look this up. Sorry about that. Was it that. about 50-50? Um, I mean, did you have the Warriors at about 55-45, or was it we pretty close? At, uh, we had them at about 71% um, going in. So, I mean, the Warriors have an enormous talent advantage over the Rockets just uh, on paper, like regardless of the style being played. Uh, and that's not really surprising. I mean, the Warriors have built themselves basically on this, you know, accumulation of incredible talent, some of which takes less money to be able to stay under the cap like Clay Thompson has done, or stay under the luxury tax. Um, and uh, also Kevin Durant, you know, being able to sign him that one offseason when the cap exploded upward has been sort of everything to this team, uh, the way it's constructed now. So I mean, it's, it's kind of interesting that the Rockets are exploiting the, the edges of the rules of the game as it's played on the court, whereas the, the Warriors built themselves by exploiting the edges of the, the metagame, the game of how teams are built and, and constructed, right? Where. Uh, and so which one should, be, should we be rooting for to win? I think it's a, a really difficult and interesting question because, on the one hand, is, is it better to, as an underdog that's undermanned, to take every advantage that you can within the, the playing surface itself and, the, and game the rules of the sport, uh, or is it better to just build the best team possible, roll out the balls, and just dominate everyone? All right, well, I don't I've, know who to root for in that situation. Yeah, you, I know you do. So let's the Raptors, go, I guess, the Raptors, right? So speaking of, speaking <laughs> the, Raptors, of the Raptors, the Raptors Sixers, Bucks, Celtics, we're going to take you to one last question before we say goodbye. Last week we had an over-under on uh, the number of playoff series won by, in total, the number of, won by total by the, by, by, uh, the Celtics, uh, sorry, by the, by the, by the Celtics and the, and the Sixers. So those two teams and the over-under was, I think it was a half. So, um, basically, do you think that either the Sixers or the Celtics will emerge victorious in this round or not? Oh, I see. So from, uh, they've already won one apiece. So yeah, we, point, so you have a little bit more information than we had. We had before we started, but so now you've seen something. It's gone pretty even so far. I don't know what you want to make of it. Although I guess the games were both on the road for, uh, the Sixers and for the Celtics. So it's probably leaned a little bit in their favor, if I had to guess, from compared to what we would have started with. Yeah. I would say if, if your opening over under was like 0.5 series one, right now our model would imply that is, 0.6, basically, because mm-hmm. the Celtics have a 32% chance of winning. It's 1-1 right now. And then the Sixers also at 1-1 have a 30% chance of winning. Um, so I guess I would take the over on that. Yeah, <laughs> All right. Yeah. There's but a I, that's, it's closer than I thought. Would Like back, you know, I was sort of, you know, I was putting these series closer to 50-50 each. So I thought it was a partic- the over was a particularly good deal. And that was before they even split the first couple games. So, well, you... and I, I think it's interesting because in each of these cases, the Celtics and the Sixers are two teams that have probably as much talent or close to as much talent as the Raptors and Bucks, 
but they just have disappointed all season. They have. So in, a, in a certain way, it was a little bit of like a undervalued pick if you thought that it was closer to 50-50 because you could spend that a little bit on the basis of talent rather than the actual observed results. As we've said in the past, you know, I, I came on a couple times ago, observed results in the NBA, especially ones outside the playoffs, which I think a lot of the impression of the Celtics and Sixers as kind of disappointing up-and-down teams were formed based on the regular season, they don't really mean that much, to be honest. Like, you could pretty much pick, uh, like, not watch regular season games almost at all uh, and, and still be able to kind of pick playoff games just based on the talent that was on the team uh, at the start of the season without knowing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Very interesting. So, Neil, I would lo- love to have you on our show. Thank you very much for joining us this morning. We had uh, two very interesting guests. We had Jeff Cedar, who shared with us some insight into the Kentucky Derby. He's always got fascinating things to say on his annual Yeah, and I mean, uh, trip. It, it's, it sort of it links up a lot with kind of what we talked about in the first half. We talked a lot in the, actually, we've talked a lot throughout this show about NFL drafting and kind of, you know, some of the questionable moves. And the fact that, you know, there just seems to still be, even in this kind of analytics age, some NFL teams that are just kind of behind the curve, like remain yep. behind the curve, and it seems like horse racing too. It's it's like a, it seems like a- analytics also is kind of nascent in this uh, nascent enough in that industry that not everybody's behind it. And so you know somebody like Jeff Cedar can kind of really get get a lot of advantage from kind of looking at data and looking at things, evaluating horses in a way that other people aren't evaluating. Yeah, the thing is, Jeff's been at it for a long time. He's been on our show. I, I'd like to think that we discovered him because uh, I shouldn't say oh. we discovered him. He showed up in my office about six or seven years ago. Right. Um, so he discovered us. I um, mean, he's been on our show every year, and uh, he's gotten some pretty good press. I mean, he's been written up written up in some some magazine articles and some books. No, and it's it's hard so, to argue with their kind of you know their, their 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 amount of success and stuff like that, especially in an industry that's kind of I, I think it seems like pretty resistant to, to unconventional, ch- to unconventional thinking. Yeah, but we also had Neil Payne, and he's always terrific to talk to about, talk about. And uh, he was sort of lamenting his Mets. Um, <laughs> what always surprises me is is uh, how many baseball teams still are behind the analytics curve. Um, and and I really want I really liked your suggestion, Shane, from our first half hour. Or that we should grade the analytics staff by the yeah. starting positions of yeah. their fielders. That, that's something that it would be an award maybe for, for it, which it would team, be right? cool. Yeah, I mean, I, th- <laughs> I I think you know, I mean, the one way, the one nice thing, it would be nice to be able to have some way of evaluating almost analy- the analytics teams of Come on. baseball because then we could actually see whether or not you know the teams with the best analytics actually are the teams that are. That's right. I mean, right now we've got things like oh well, we kind of see teams that have the most analysts. You know, I, we you know, like like you know the Yankees. I know have a giant analytics t- uh, team. Uh, the, the Rays, team. I the think, Rays. right? The Rays right. have yeah. a very large analytics teams, and these are teams that are doing well. Though again, you could always argue, at least in the case of the Yankees, that you know the Yankees are probably destined to do well no matter no what. No matter what. But, but we also uh, we had a great conversation with Neil about about James Harden and yeah. how much such a savanti is how he's really yeah. discovered a weakness in the game and exploited it, and he's created the this uh, exceptional uh, team, the uh, the Rockets. Uh, it's not clear they're going to beat the Warriors. Well, I, again, I I mean, I, the, the most interesting aspect, I, the thing that fascinates me the most about basketball in general is just how seemingly disconnected the regular season and playoffs are, just in terms of, like, it doesn't seem, I mean, both in terms of, like, the personnel that are being used consistently in the playoffs, mm-hmm. how hard they're trying in the playoffs versus the regular season, and then, uh, you know, it's uh, this was kind of the discovery today, the fact that the officiating changes enough in the playoffs, in the yeah. playoffs to kind of 
potentially take away some of these advantages that Harden has. That that was interesting. Yeah, and I also, I mean, it is, uh, it is kind of. I don't think it's particularly a, a, a pleasant strategy to imagine that you have a player who's exploiting referee imbalances to, right. to victory. That seems odd. Well, I, I mean, you know, it's it's yes because yeah, I mean, what, what's really uncomfortable is that the referees have so much influence over game yeah, outcomes. No, it's no. kind of like I, I mean, like I I could counter argue. I mean, we saw, talked about how great it is, CC Sabathia and Andy Pettit, how they paint the corners of the strike zone. That is also, mm-hmm. in some way, exploiting umpiring decisions to your advantage, right? They do, and and it's it's unclear. I mean, the thing is, is that the the, the umpires are pretty pretty good at it. No, they're, are they? They're, they are. Are they? Are they? Yeah, are they? It's they're a better tough than job. I am. They are better. Um, they actually have been getting better. One of the things that they they do is they do an accounting. The umpires get a, a scorecard. Yeah, and it tells them how they do, and they are getting more consistent. Although I have to say, catcher pitch framing is bigger than ever, and the belief in it is bigger than ever. And you know, but and, is it is it actually bigger than ever, a bigger part of the game than ever? Or it's just that we I can actually know. quantify it now so we can kind of realize how big a part of the game it's perhaps always been. It, it perhaps has always been, but I still am suspicious that we are doing a good job of mm-hmm. quantifying because yeah. there's an enormous amount of error and variation in that. And it turns out there actually is not as many pitches as you, you think there would be in a, in a course of a single game that are even frameable. Right. Most pitches are either pretty obvious or yeah. swung at or a variety of different things. Um, so we are, we are, we had a, we had a great morning. We had, we talked an enormous amount. Um, I want to leave a little extra time, um, <laughs> This morning for our our final segments, we usually we usually have a, a final segment um, that I give only to ten you know five ten minutes to. We're going to give a little bit longer to this because I have some some ideas. So we're going to go right to our last segment. It's Warden Moneyballs over under. So we've been doing over unders now for uh, some time, and uh, one of the things so b- the basic format for over unders is. Uh, um, uh, our producer, Maddie Datz, throws out a bunch of uh, lines, and basically it's an over-under. We have to make a prediction whether there's going to be more or less. And he does a good job because basically the, the success rate um, uh, is about, if you were just randomly guessing, you should get about 50% correct. And uh, and so those lines are drawn pretty well. Uh, but one of the things that we, we advocate is that we should... We really consistently go back and check to see how we're doing. So I'm not going to give a full recap. We're going to wait for that. But uh, there's been a, a number of uh, of um, our over-unders have had a chance to be completed. And I thought we would take a look at what we said and what actually happened. And that should that should be, a, I think, a regular segment in our show. So I have one to start with. And then, and then we're going to do the new over-unders. So we actually had two Kyler Murray draft picks over unders. We made one back in February, and the over under was was on what his draft position would actually be. And we actually had five point five back in February, and all of us went <laughs> went over over. <laughs> so I thought, and actually, yeah. and I thought that was a no brainer. I mean, it's, it's kind of a support of what you were talking about early in the show about how you know he kind of like at that time we were kind of thinking he probably choose to play baseball. You know, I mean I that, that that it, it, he, we've come such a long way from him probably just sticking with baseball to maybe if he plays decides to play football like a late first round pick and they ended up being the number one. There it goes. Yeah, and uh, although I have to say, what happened um, was that uh, that we actually had a second. Um, Kyler Murray draft pick yeah. on three thirteen. So so about six weeks later, the over under was one point five, and. We all, we all went under. We all Eric wasn't it. there that day, but we all went under. So by that time, it was already clear that Arizona. You can was teach going to these old them. dogs some new tricks, as it turns out. 
<laughs> you can. <laughs> All right, and it turns so last week um, we had Dwayne Haskins as a draft pick, and uh, the over under was ten point five, ten point five, and guess what we all did. We took the under. We all took, took the, the under. under. We figured yeah, he would be the number one. Well, he was supposed to. If the Giants had just done the right thing, we would all be right. <laughs> yes, I know. I mean, how are we supposed to build in Gettleman doing that? It's that's, crazy. That's just not even fair to us, <laughs> that, man. That is, that Gettleman hijacked our pick. All right. So I, there's a couple of things that I wanted to, to go back and visit also. So we had a, we had a Tiger Woods uh, finish at the Masters over yeah. under that was on four three and here's the over under. It's great to sort of look back at those to give yeah. you a, it's a reflection of what we thought at the time. So ten point five was the over under, and guess who lost? That would be me. Yeah, I was the only one who took the over on that. I don't know why you hate Tiger. <laughs> Just terrible. Tiger. No, I was I going mean, with base rates. You, no, yeah, and I, you know, and also if if I remember correctly, we should actually track who picks last because I feel like there's also this other weird over under tendency of us is like. If if everybody there's like a contrarian tendency to the yeah. last person mm-hmm. to pick right because it's not exciting really if we all pick the same direction so it's actually interesting but if I'm looking back at the over unders there's only that uh, you're looking at the same list as I, I think yeah. I'm seeing three where we all went the same direction the first one the Kyler Murray draft yeah. pick and back in February we all went over and then we all went under on the the on the uh, Kyler Murray the second round. Yep, that was the second one. And then the Dwayne's Haskins pick, we all went under on that yeah. one, too. But usually we have a little bit of diversity. So and I here's, think there is a contrarian aspect. So though. here's one we should we can visit and we can gloat over our yeah. colleagues whether or not here. So I remember this day, Chris Davis. So Chris Davis is is the Baltimore hitter who had this ridiculously long streak without a hit. Uh, I forget. How, I think he was at 49 at the time, and he needed to... to um, and so the forecast, was he, was he going to break the record? So what was the number of at-bats that he'll go without a hit? And the over-under was 6.5. So both Eric and Cade thought he would go over. Now, these guys are the momentum people. Yeah. So they're figuring, you know, that's just, we're going to rag on them right now. They're the most, actually, it's not really fair. Cade is not really the momentum person. He's uh, he's more of a base rate guy, kind of guy, but it's yeah. definitely, Eric is definitely a momentum guy. So if you're going with momentum, you'd say for sure more than 6.5 at-bats without a hit. And you and I both went under on yeah. that one. So what was your thinking? We were the winners on I don't that even one? think I was thinking. You I mean, this thinking. is about, yeah, I mean, I think I was, I, I probably kind of flipped a coin in my head or whatever. I mean, you know, I, I yeah, I, I, I think it was probably pure luck on my part that I got. I was this thinking one. he's a base two hundred hitter, which means yeah. one in five, and you're giving me one in six. So yeah. I just went with base rates, and we managed well, that I mean, one out. You turned out to be smart on your part. We did actually. Well, you too. I probably just did by <laughs> by accident. What you did. All right, so that that's our review. We'll have a more systematic <laughs> review. We actually do have a a, a running tally. I'm not gonna. If I were Cade, I would gloat, um, but I'm not Cade, and, and I'm Adi, and I am gloating. No, no, I am the leader right now. I'll just throw that out. Didn't mean to, ah. but it happened. Oh well, sorry. Um, but let's go with our new one. And I'm going to turn it over to you, Shane, to to to, uh, to start us All off. All right. With well, we got to we got to at least have given our amazing discussion with Jeff Cedar. We got to at least have one Derby over derby. Uh, Kentucky Derby over under. So, point five Omaha Beach and game winner wins at the Kentucky Derby. Now, just to note that those are those are the top two kind of by odds. Plus four hundred for Omaha Beach, plus four fifty for game winners. So Ooh, point okay. five. Um, all right. Interesting. Do so, one of those two win. So I'm going to. I'll start off by saying. Um, that the answer is under, because if you add the probabilities, it's well less than 50%. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm just going with base rates. I'm also going to throw in the Jeff Cedar. He's, yeah. he's thinking these guys are not going to win. So I'm definitely going 
on the underside. On the contrary side, maybe to lead you back in the other yeah. direction, we've had six years in a row of favorite victory. Oh. So uh, that throws out. Uh, oh. If you go with that strategy, that makes it a tough call. And once again, Maddie Datz with a good over-under line for us. Um, so I'm going under. You? I got it. Even even with the kind of recent string, I got to go under as well. I got to represent my man Jeff Cedar. He's got me. He's a. I'm a believer in the logarithmic decay tiring function. <laughs> right. Um. So I'm not going to go against that. I'm going to take the under on that as well. I don't think either of those two horses win. All right. If only they didn't tire as fast. <laughs> if only. Okay. So let's next up. Let's uh, take some NBA playoffs. Um. One point five wins for the Rockets for the rest of the playoffs. So, of course, this series and potentially beyond. Wow. So I think really what we're talking about this series will well, be I mean, well, Obviously, two. we're talking about this series because it's uh, 1.5 uh, wins. Uh, and we do take to. turns. So even though you're, you're feeding, you do uh, have to start. Oh, okay. All right. Well, I am going to I'm going to take the over. I think the Rockets pull it together and actually make a real series of this. I don't know if it goes seven games, but I... I, th- I could believe it goes six. And so, um, so I'm gonna I'm gonna take the over. Okay, so I like the over. I like them coming home, and I like them coming home because we know that Harden plays a ref strategy. And if you believe the the analytics, the oh, refs yeah, love the one. home team more than that. And I like that. I don't like agreeing with you. Not that not well, that because I like the diversity, but I think that's the right answer. Okay. So I'm going All with right. the over on that one. We are we are yeah. finding hard and, to and then find. I'll turn back to the East in the NBA, which I think is the even more compelling uh, part a series, at least for the second round. Point five series to go to Game Seven in the East, and we're just talking about this. To clarify, we're just talking about this current round of series. So Sixers, Raptors, and Celtics, Bucks. So Point either five. of them, either they're going to a Game Seven. Ooh, and it's my call. So yep. what am I thinking? What am I thinking? I'm thinking. So I'm gonna. I'm the. Part of the fun, I think, of this is to hear our thought processes. No. So I do believe that in the NBA we have XS seven XS seven games. I think if you looked at the base rate probabilities and calculate the probability of going seven games, that it is excessive. So I do like that. I do like the fact that I do think of these teams as pretty equal. I do like the mm-hmm. fact that they're 1.1. They're one each right now. So I'm ticking all the boxes for a likely seven-game finish in at least one. So I got two opportunities. So I'm going, it's probably, whoa, I'm going over. I'm just I'm hitting right. it and going yeah, over. No, I mean, and honestly, I... You you you've com- you're, you're, you've presented some very compelling arguments. I have to say, <laughs> I mean, I'm I'm mostly going on the fact that I do see these two series as very even, and um, most series in baseball, basketball I don't see as particularly even. So this is the best shot I think we have for some seven game series this second round in the East. So I'm I'm going to take the over as well. On it's that. it's interesting that you think that's a better shot than the than the Rockets. I think prior to the start of the series, people would have thought that was most likely to go seven games. Although I was a little surprised when Neil when Neil t- told me that his his seventy one percent Golden State yeah, Warrior. I, I wouldn't see the see the Rockets as the Rockets war. I mean, the Rockets. I think of all teams have the best chance to beat Golden State, mm-hmm. even though it's much less than fifty percent because they are, I think, the second best team in the NBA. I don't know about that. I, I actually think one of those East series is more likely to go to seven games than the Rockets Golden State, just because nothing, no series with Golden State in it is seems very high. Uh, odds to go to Game Seven. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's they're it's, just so much better. They're so much better. And if, yeah. I've had a chance to watch a, a bit of basketball this year, I've, and uh, they just—I mean, I'm you know—I don't know what my eyesight sight is really like for basketball, but to my unfocused, untrained, somewhat novice basketball eyes, it seems quite yeah. transparent that the, the Golden State Warriors and the Rockets 
are just much better than the other teams. Yeah. All right. So what else we got? Okay. Well, let's. Uh, we let's. Uh, well, I mean, more, we, I we spent a lot of time today talking about Daniel Jones. Let's have one over under to do with him. Two point five starts for Daniel Jones this season. <laughs> this season. Okay. So so what's his competition? It's well, Eli so Manning. Eli right? Manning is yeah. still the resident quarterback, and at least uh, to, uh, extra information. They you know the plan at least is for Eli Manning to play this entire season, but you know how these things go. Or maybe you don't know how these things how go. How do these things you're, go? You're, Tell well, me. No, that's up to you. It's uh, am I, am I, actually, it's my turn. I'm it's your turn. But you know, give me some background here. So, but uh, just share t- typically, typically, people with that high of a draft, I mean... They start, right? They they don't necessarily use. They don't usually start to start the season, right? And I mean, it, it's not at all surprising that Eli Manning is still the starter as as currently stands. But the Giants are probably going to be bad this year. Um and Eli Manning's probably going to be part of that badness. Badness. Well, he's over um, four years. I, I, I would, I, I would expect. Uh, you know, all you really have. My prediction is they are out of playoff contention with a few games left in the season, and they give this Daniel Jones guy a role. And you know, I guess I had to also predict that he's not so gut wrenchingly awful in those starts that they immediately pull him. So I'm going to take the over. <laughs> You're taking, I'm going to take the over. I think he starts more than uh, two and a half oh, games a season. Oh man, this is a tricky one because I think I agree with you. I think I think Gittleman's going to want to start him to show to show that his pick wasn't as bad as everyone claims. Because frankly, if you think about it from his perspective, he only has upside to start him. Because if he doesn't start him, he's going to take a lot of shit for not starting him. So, right? Because he has this. Yeah. And if he starts him, he's got only upside because if he does well, he, he it's it's. I mean, it's, certainly it's great, the, the right? expectations are about as low as they could get. Right. So if he point. starts That's him right. and he does bad, he's exactly where he is now. Yeah. And if he starts him and he does good, he puts himself in a different place. So if you think yeah. psychologically, and I hate to be a psychological thinker here, but, yeah. but I think that's a good thing to be at this point, is that from the point of view of loss function, I think that the GM has the best path to redemption by starting him. Mm-hmm. Even though I think it's probably not the right thing to do, I think a, a college quarterback needs some seasoning. He should, probably should not be starting until his, until Eli is finally ready to uh, to hang up those cleats. But I'm going to go with you on the over right. for this one. All right, I think we have. Do we have time for a real super quickie, or we have only about a minute? So let's. Uh, all right, all right. Well, let's do one. Just, uh, just speaking of our discussion. MLB, 0.5 Kyler Murray and Tim Tebow Major League <laughs> Baseball games. All right, all right. I, I'm going to take a quick one on that Tim one. Tim Tebow's going... hitting 149 in AAA <laughs> this year, by the way. 149. Wow, Oof. that's horrible. Last year he was pretty decent. Um, I think he's he's so bad that there's no way he's good. they're going to bring him up, and I think that the Mets are are actually going to be in this for a bit of a time. So I'm going to go under on that. We Neil Payne actually gave us an over. And, yeah. And, uh, <laughs> I'm going to. I mean, Dan Neil, Loney's in, Neil the, in the studio. Neil saying, Payne's a diehard Met guy, and he's a smart dude. And I also believe the Mets, the Mets of all organizations, would just do this to get some fans out to the game in a lost season. I'm taking the over. You're taking the over. Yeah. All right. All right. Here we have it. That concludes. We have an over over on Tim Tebow. That's a that's a, just to, to, to summarize here. Neil went over. Shane went over. Dan Loney on the back there is going over over. Team Tim Tim Tebow is going to play. 
I, there's also Kyler Murray, but not this year. No. So so let's let's uh, let's put him on the back burner. Anyway, that concludes our two hour show. It's been great fun. I've been this has been uh, Professor Adi Weiner of the Wharton School of Business. I've been joined in the studio with my colleague, full professor of statistics, Shane Jensen. Um, and in the studios in the back, we had Maddie Datz, our producer. We had Danielle Bruno on the sound and as our sound engineer. We had Zab Drapkin, our assistant producer, putting together all our over under statistics. It's been a great two-hour show. We'll see you in a week's time. Have a good week. Enjoy your sports. Enjoy your statistics. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.